We know what you're thinking. Episode 101, A Space Odyssey? Well, we would love to have spent this week talking about that famous movie. However, the world has dealt us a cruel blow, so today's show is going to be about Michelle Nichols, who unfortunately passed away this weekend at age 89. Most fondly remembered for playing Lieutenant Uhura in Star Trek. But in the real world, she played a pivotal role in modernizing NASA in the 1970s, and a number of astronauts would never have applied if it was not for her influence. Do you have a favorite Michelle Nichols memory? Let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. But right now, enjoy episode 101 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to our podcast. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm a, I'm a little sad about this weekend's news with Nichelle Nichols. Obviously, that's a that's a huge loss. But uh, other than that, I'm things are things are well. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about that video she did with Alan Bean. And, and I hope they're recreating that somewhere. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Let's get straight into it, shall we? So as we said in the intro, the world lost a giant this past weekend. Michelle Nichols passed away aged 89. Nichols is mostly known for playing Lieutenant Uhura in the original Star Trek TV show when it first aired back in 1966, becoming one of the first women of colour to have a role in a major television series. After the first season, she resigned due to being unhappy with some aspects of the show and because she felt like her talents were being wasted. However, she met with Dr. Martin Luther King, who told her that she could not give up because, and I quote, and I'm quoting a secondhand account from Nichols herself, and she said that Martin Luther King said to her, for the first time on television, we will be seen as we should be seen every day, as intelligent, quality, beautiful people who can sing, dance, and go to space, who are professors, lawyers. If you leave, that door can be closed because your role is not a black role and it's not a female role. He can fill it with anybody, even an alien. And so she withdrew her resignation and stayed on the show. The show was eventually cancelled in 1969, but the, the public love it. And as, almost as soon as it was cancelled, you started seeing these conventions and gatherings of faithful fans. And this popularity led to the studio commissioning the movies later on. Now, you may be wondering why we're devoting so much time to an actress on a space podcast. It's not just because Star Trek was set in space. Nichelle Nichols was instrumental in changing the face of NASA. In the late 1970s, NASA attempted to recruit the next generation of astronauts who would fly on the space shuttle. For the first time, they were encouraging women and minorities to apply. But the problem was that no one believed them. After a chance meeting with one of the NASA top dogs at a Star Trek convention, Nichelle got invited to NASA and asked the question, where are my people? Uh, she told them that they needed to reach out to women and minorities to let them know they were welcome to be part of NASA, and NASA decided to hire her to do just that. With just four months left before the application deadline, Nichols undertook a large PR campaign with the company she set up called Woman in Motion. Uh, she traveled the whole of the U.S. and undertook as many media engagements as possible. When she started, NASA had received only 1,500 applications in an eight-month period, and less than 100 were from women, and only 35 were from minorities. 
By the time she finished, four months later, NASA had received over 8,000 applications, including 1,649 from women and over 1,000 from minorities. NASA was so pleased with this campaign that they increased the size of the astronaut class that year from 25 to 35, and among those she recruited were Dr. Sally Ride, the first U.S. female in space, and Colonel Guy Bluford, the first African-American astronaut to fly. And so this week, we wanted to talk a little bit about Star Trek and, and its effect it had on the world of space. So to do this, we asked Charles M. Chafer, who's the co-founder of Celestius. Yes, he's Emily's boss. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's my boss. To come and talk about this subject, something which is very close to his heart, as I'm sure we're about to find out. So for those of you who haven't heard us talk about this before, Celestius is a company who provide memorial space flights. Uh, they've completed more than a dozen missions for over a thousand families in more than 20 countries. Essentially, a space funeral. Anyway, let's talk to the co-founder, Charles Chafer. Hi, I'm Michelle Nichols, but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th century Enterprise, an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration. Now, NASA's Enterprise is a space shuttle built to make regularly scheduled runs into space and back, just like a commercial airline. The shuttle may even be used to build a space station in orbit around the Earth. And this would require the services of people with a variety of skills and qualifications. Average good health is required, and candidates will train right here at Johnson Space Center, just outside Houston, Texas. Full disclosure, Charles is my boss, <laughs> and um, I would also like to thank Charles <laughs> for not firing me when I crashed the website a few weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, so let's get, let's get started. So, Charles, thank you for joining us, and welcome to Space and Things. So, we love a great scene-setting question. Uh, let's talk about your lunch with uh, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry around the time that Three Mile Island melted down in 1979. Absolutely, yeah. I was a uh, lowly graduate student at uh, Georgetown University, and we had put together a early space institute um, and were hired by NASA to write a book about the social sciences and space exploration. And that was unheard of for NASA. NASA didn't fund social studies back then. And mm. it was so unheard of that the mere granting of our grant, the signing of the grant, made the New York Times newspaper. Wow. <laughs> so it was, um, and it was, I think it was the princely sum of $30,000 or something like that. I mean, it was just a very small grant. But the technical advisor on the grant was someone that everyone should know about. His name was Jesko von Putkama. We called him Jesko because we're from Texas. But Jesko was a visionary. He was a young man on the Von Braun team. In fact, the world uh, heard one day that Jesko saying, uh, Von Braun told me, come to Huntsville. We are going to the moon. So he joined von braun's team in huntsville 
rose up within NASA to a headquarters position of sort of the director of future studies. And it was as much because NASA didn't know how to take this guy who was absolutely visionary about space technology and totally committed to a Star Trek future. What do we put him, <laughs> make use of him? Anyway, Jesco called us up one day uh, and said, would you guys like to meet me and Stephen Cheston, who many will also remember, who was the dean of the graduate school, close friend of Jerry O'Neill. Um, Jesco called us and said, uh, would you like to have lunch with me and Gene Roddenberry? Of course, the answer was easy. And uh, so we had lunch on the day Three Mile Island was melting down at the Four Georges restaurant in um, Washington, D.C., in Georgetown. And I wish I could tell you I remembered a lot about the conversation, but I think the main thing I remembered is, you know, as a 20-something-year-old, I was pretty awestruck. You could tell that the affinity that Yesco and Gene Roddenberry had for each other and that they shared this vision that we all share uh, and that we continue to share. It was sort of like being there at the creation <laughs> in some ways. So it was a, you know, it was a great start to my um, professional career interacting with Star Trek folks. And the main thing it netted me was a pair of tickets to the Air and Space Museum world premiere of the first Star Trek movie. <laughs> nice. Which <laughs> I still have today because I had the wrong night. <laughs> oh, no. I was ready to go the next night and oh, I saw on the TV news all of the uh, ceremony there at the Star Trek kickoff. Anyway, it's a fond memory. You know, I'm, I'm privileged to have been able to meet and speak with so many of the original Star Trek folks, but but obviously being able to have have lunch with with the creator uh, was great. Loved it. Yeah, that's incredible. What a story! It's funny because uh, yeah, Jesco comes up within uh, Nichelle's story as well, which I'm sure we'll come, sure. To, come to later. Um, so let's discuss the legacy of Star Trek, especially the original series. It, it, it depicted a multicultural crew in space at a time when actual spaceflight was not diverse. <laughs> was Roddenberry making a statement about what the future might look like? Oh, hell yes. <laughs> to give you a short answer, I mean... <laughs> Again, for people that are interested, there's a marvelous uh, biography of, of Roddenberry out. It's in paperback, and it's like 800 pages. It's really long. But in fact, he was very much aware of the choices that he was making. And I believe, again, clashed early on with uh, the folks that were funding the series uh, more than once. But uh, use the, oh, well, then I'm going to leave um, <laughs> reaction and fought, fought for multiracial, multi-planetary, but, but diversity was what he was about and his vision of the future, I'm, I, I know, was that we can't get there any other ways. The interesting point you make, though, is the contrast to the way spaceflight actually was. 
I had the privilege of working for um, Deke Slayton, one of the original Mercury astronauts for a decade. And Deke and his team, if you will, were on a path to being able to recognize the importance of diversity. Uh, and they were at the beginning of that path, I think, during their actual flight days. But I know Deke, the main thing he respected was competence. And in fact, for one of our companies, he hired a woman as, as president very early on, a, a woman as president of a land remote sensing company and thought the world of it. So back to Gene, I like to look at it as, as we're sort of getting there. <laughs> we're on the path still, but Star Trek without that overarching theme wasn't, wouldn't be Star Trek. Mm. So during the 1970s, the, the late Nichelle Nichols uh, went on television and encouraged women, African-Americans and Asian-Americans to apply for NASA's astronaut corps. Obviously beforehand, it was really, it was all middle-class white guys. Mm. Do you think this new era at NASA could have happened without Star Trek's influence? Hard to say. I, um, it would be different. And what we can say is exactly what you said, is that Michelle was right at the forefront of that. And uh, the more that you uh, know her, read about her, or follow her, the more you see that commitment to inclusion and women and various races um, coming into the space program. And to some extent, NASA had to be ready to accept that mm. because NASA embraced her yeah. and said, we want you to do more and more of this. On the other hand, it's not real clear how much of that was, oh, yeah, yeah, go do that and, and have fun with the kids versus we're going to make substantive changes inside of the organization to promote this. I think it took a generation or two. And I have another Star Trek-related story associated with that. We have, on two occasions so far, and, and coming up on a third, flown Jimmy Doohan, uh, Scotty's ashes, uh, into space. And when that was first announced, we didn't even know that it was in his will. He, I, I was actually on a beach in, I believe, Mississippi. I came in for lunch, turned on CNN, and down on the bottom was the scroller saying, Jimmy Doohan wishes to be launched to space. <laughs> and and that, that's how we found out that, like his buddy Gene, that, and that's exactly what he said, I want to go like his buddy Gene. When that announcement was made, and yeah, it was a little earlier in the World Wide Web, but our server crashed hmm. from the amount of incoming messages from all over the world. But one of the dominant things said was, I never would have been an engineer but for Jimmy Doohan and his portrayal of Scotty. Wow. So I think you can see the same thing with Nichelle. I never would have thought I could have been an astronaut woman, African-American, except for what Nichelle um, told me I could. Absolutely. Yeah. You see that all the time, don't you? I mean, even Martin Luther King told her to make sure she kept going. Yeah. It was so yeah. important. It's, it's, it's quite not difficult, but it's harder for someone of my generation to look back and appreciate how incredible it was that she was cast in that role in 1966 yeah. Yeah. Uh, and what that meant to 
that community uh, to have to that the representation. World, really. Yeah. To the world, really. I mean, it was a it was a huge deal. Why do you think that Star Trek endures in popularity over fifty five years after the debut of that original series? It's Gene Roddenberry's vision and well attended to by the people that came behind him. The the honor that the folks that came after him, beginning of course with Rod, but also with the other producers and the devotion they have to that vision, creating that coherent vision, that cohesive vision, that positive vision that we can all go vision and just assuming it, right? <laughs> Through all the subsequent series. Some of the series are better, some of the series are worse, but all of them are popular. The reason for that longevity it goes back to uh, the founder and uh, his commitment. And I guess maybe careful selection by the stewards of the property over time. I know it's gone to various owners and there have been various uh, producers and, and such that have been involved, but none of them said, okay, well, we're gonna go turn this into you know, XYZ, Buck Rogers or whatever. They got it. So last but not least, uh, tell us more about Celestis's connections to the Star Trek community and more about uh, the upcoming Enterprise flight. So the connection to Star Trek is because the founders of Celestis were connected to Star Trek and shared that overarching goal, the same overarching goal. So it really begins with before our first flight, when we had first formed the company in about 1995, and we were preparing our first mission. And I'd read that NASA Administrator Dan Golden had approved astronaut Jim Weatherby to fly in his personal kit some of Gene Roddenberry's ashes into space. Now, that was a big thing because that was a clandestine until after it happened effort. And what it did for us was allows me to say, I'm not doing anything that NASA isn't already doing. So um, for people that the eyes is appropriate. Yeah. NASA's done it. So we're cool. <laughs> yeah. um, but I read about that. And so I went to my friend at, uh, uh, the National Space Society, uh, who later became deputy administrator of NASA, but at the time she was just Lori. I went to Lori and said, hey, I see Major Roddenberry is on your board. Do you think we could approach her to see if she'd let me fly some of Gene Roddenberry's ashes on our first mission? And Lori said, yeah, yeah. She said, by the way, it would be very helpful because I know Majel knows Bobby Slayton, Deke's widow, if you could get Bobby to, to weigh in and say, you know, Charlie's real and it's, <laughs> he's not going to embarrass you. Because, again, we hadn't flown anything. We, we were a startup. So we reached out to Majel, and she agreed we were able to get a sample of Gene Roddenberry's remains on our first flight, our founder's flight which also included the remains, a uh, sample of the remains of 
uh, 60s icon, Timothy Leary, and 22 other brave pioneers who were on our first mission we called the Founders Flight. That message went super galactic <laughs> when we did the launch. It was the first time CNN had ever covered an unmanned, they call it then, unmanned launch live around the world. They covered us. And I'm sure it was because of Roddenberry and, and Timothy Lee. It was also, it was a strange thing happening from the Canary Islands, these Texans doing what kind of thing. But <laughs> uh, And that fight went very well. And it was at the memorial service we held back at Vandenberg, California, after that first flight. She said, um, essentially, or no, I'm sorry, before that first flight, she said, essentially, I'm, I'm happy to have provided Jean's ashes to help you out, Charlie, to get started. But I want you to make me a promise. And that is that when it's my time, I'd like to fly the two of you together, the two of us together, like you to fly the two of us together on an endless deep space voyage. So being a optimistic startup entrepreneurial type, I, I said, sure. Not really knowing how <laughs> or when we would get to it. But yes, as soon as we can, I will do that. And that really was the genesis of the what we call the Enterprise Flight, which will be our 20th or 21st mission, depending upon how the schedule shakes out. And it's an amazing mission. We're flying on the initial Vulcan rocket. We didn't plan it that way, but what a great rocket <laughs> riding on, right? The Vulcan with Gene Roddenberry, Majel Barrett Roddenberry, Jimmy Doohan, and others who worked on the series, as well as hundreds of other folks uh, from around the world. But the mission will fly the first Vulcan trajectory is scheduled to include the astrobotic peregrine lunar lander. And we'll have 80 folks, including Sir Arthur C. Clarke, on that lunar lander. So we have two missions on that first Vulcan flight. After Vulcan drops off Peregrine into the lunar orbit, it fires its Centaur 5 mission and takes it on uh, essentially a forever trajectory. We go out about 300 million miles past Mars and become a heliocentric forever mission. Um, we'll change the name from Enterprise Flight to Enterprise Station, claiming the furthest human outpost yet in space. And we'll have that mission, which will go on literally for as, at least as long as the sun is around. That brings in our other connection, which I described earlier, which was with Wendy Doohan and the late James Doohan. Again, uh, same thing. We, we flew Jimmy. Before it was Spaceport America, there was a launch range where Spaceport America is. And we flew our first Earthrise mission, suborbital flight. We put Jimmy Doohan's ashes on that. And that mission didn't quite get all the way that it wanted to get. And so it became a lander crasher, if you will, on the White Sands Missile Range. And the pingers that you use to go find it, because this is a payload you recover. For us, we return the capsules to the family and they have a flown keepsake, but there weren't any pingers pinging. So if you know how big White Sands Missile Range is, it's oh my. hundreds of miles. 
somewhere they knew Jimmy Doohan's and several others' ashes were there. So the up aerospace guys and the Wismer guys got a helicopter and flew about five feet off the ground. The grid, a grid of the entire white sand, visually looking for the payload. Two or three days it took. Media was writing, Doohan lost in space, not on space, on the ground. But fortunately for all of us, the, the payload was recovered. and We flew him successfully on a second mission and then have put him in orbit once. But the really cool mission is, is our Enterprise Flight Deep Space Mission. We have a lot of other connections to Star Trek. Uh, Doug Trumbull, the special effects whiz, is on this flight. And tons of fans. And that's really the connection is that the fans having an opportunity to finally, even if symbolically, fly into space with their loved one, in the case of if you want to fly your DNA, or with be on board the Enterprise, be on this amazing historical mission that's about to happen. So a lot of, lot of interconnection. Thanks very much for joining us, Charles. This has been a really interesting conversation. I'm sure we'll talk again. I'm sure there'll be yeah. another topic worth, yes. worthy of us talking again. But uh, thank you very much for joining us. Talk about a bit about Star Trek. My pleasure. Thank you, thank Brad. You. Now the shuttle will be taking scientists and engineers, men and women of all races, into space, just like the astronaut crew on the Starship Enterprise. So that is why I'm speaking to the whole family of humankind, minorities and women alike. If you qualify and would like to be an astronaut, now is the time. I don't want to make this whole show, you know, an advertisement, but um, you see why I love working at Celestia's? Yeah. I love how he just is like, you know, working with Jerry O'Neill, as you do, you know, just like, <laughs> just like, yeah, you know, I, I worked with Gerard K. O'Neill, like, yeah, you know, as one, as one, as does. one does. It's certainly a good fit for you, isn't it? Yes. I'm still like freaked out that I even worked there because I'm like, dude, my boss worked with Deke Slayton and Jerry O'Neill, yeah. like had no choice. I had to go. Absolutely. So. <laughs> Absolutely. So Emily, yeah. are you a Star Trek fan? You know, I, I don't go to the conventions or anything like that, but I definitely am a Star Trek fan. I, I remember watching it as a as a kid, you know, on TV. It was in re obviously in reruns by that point. But um, this is actually kind of cool in a way. I don't think I realized as a kid, you know, how it really seamlessly integrated. Like, okay, we have all sorts of people in space. You know, we have men, women you know, Asians, African-Americans. I don't think I understood back then, you know, what the show was saying, but it definitely sort of, in my mind, sort of wrote a template of what space really looks like. Does that make mm. sense? And I yeah, think absolutely. that's a, but I never thought of it like as a kid. So I think that's a good thing because for, I think for many of us, that was kind of our exposure to like what the future actually would look like, you know, because yeah. this was, during the you know the early 1980s and even in the early 1980s things had a way to go i think we were just at the beginning of the point where you know okay we're gonna try to make it look more representative of actual united states actual space flight yeah but star trek i think definitely set the template yeah i, I i'm the same i i i was more about the movies uh, yeah i remember watching them but i, I think by the time they got to me space flight already kind of looked that way obviously not as much as it should have done, but let's be fair, Star Trek was diverse, but not 
50-50, it just included other people, which was the first, right? So yeah. uh, it's still even that first crew of Star Trek still had a long way to go in many ways, but it was such a huge step then. You then get on to why we wanted to have this conversation today, Michelle Nichols and her mission in the 70s. And it was interesting that Charles brought up Jesco then, because it was, we mentioned earlier that, that uh, in a chance meeting, Michelle met one of the bosses at NASA. So she met Jesco, who was the director of science at NASA. And this was at the 1975 Star Trek convention. And it was the first time NASA had sent someone along to talk, to do a presentation at a Star Trek convention, which is amazing. Uh, and, it, and it was through that meeting that Nichelle then got invited to NASA to go and, go and talk to people about how more diverse it could be. Jesco was saying, look, well, yeah, we, we're actually opening it up. We need some help. And they did it with her. And, and what she did, I mean, the stats we, we said before the interview, uh, they had 1,500 applications in the eight-month period before Nichelle was involved, of which less than 100 were from women and only 35 from minorities. And then four months later, after Nichelle had been involved, you've got 8,000 applications, 1,649 from women and over 1,000 from minorities. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a huge difference. Yes, she was a, like, uh, and I, I mean this in a very positive way, not a snarky way. She was like the first space influencer, you know, yes. like, like really, yes. because she's the, she's probably, you know, one of the first people I could think of that went out there, you know, in this, and that day and age, the medium was television, you know, to say, we want you to join our, you know, this program, you know, things are, things are different now, you know, we're making things different. Like Charles said in the interview, you know, a lot of engineers uh, love Star Trek. I was reading on Twitter, there was a tweet by Chasing the Moon. There was an interview with Fred Gregory, who was one of the first black astronauts. And he was like, you know, I'm watching TV and Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura is like, I want you to join NASA. And he was like, hell yeah, I want to join NASA. That was a huge deal. I mean, she really was one of the first people who has had you know, that much influence and it was able to, you know, I guess, persuade people like, okay, things are different now. Maybe, maybe I should try to sign up. Maybe they'll actually take me. And they did. I've got more on that story. I think you're going to like this. All right. So Fred Gregory was in the armed forces at the time and the armed forces had their own way of selecting astronauts, so to speak. They didn't select them, but they would nominate people to NASA having gone through their own vetting process and this is how they'd always done it they went through all the people that wanted to be an astronaut through the armed forces and they put forward a list to nasa when the shell started her campaign she got invited to the pentagon because wow. the the military bigwigs wanted to let her know that they weren't changing their policy that they were still the ones that were going to choose who was being recommended to nasa from inside the military so she said fine she said that there's still the uh, you can still apply as a citizen though, can't you? And they said yes, of course. So she went round and told all these people that just don't apply through the military, apply uh, apply as a citizen. And that's exactly what Fred Gregory did. He didn't apply through the military because he knew he probably wouldn't get selected. One day he's sitting there and he gets a phone call from General Tom Stafford, and apparently he then said. Who the hell are you to Fred Gregory? And Fred Gregory said, hey, I'm Major 
Fred Gregory. And then Tom Stafford said, why have you applied through the civilian program? And he said, because if I was on the Air Force selection panel, I wouldn't have selected me to go through to the NASA selection. And Tom Stafford said, well, I just wanted to know why. And then he hung up. And that only happened because of Nichelle Nichols and her explaining to people how to apply. And Fred Gregory not only became one of the first African-American astronauts, he ended up in quite high positions in NASA, changing things in the future. So this is a really important moment when Nichelle got involved. And and there are plenty of stories similar to that of other astronauts who only applied because of Nichelle Nichols. For example, Judy Resnick. Uh, and, and her and Judy became good friends as well. Yes. Most of these stories I'm, I'm telling you I've got from the Woman in Motion documentary, which we spoke about when the trailer first came out ages ago. But I thoroughly recommend that people watch this documentary. It's just so inspiring. You find out about this woman and her quest and how personally she took it to make sure that NASA changed and that NASA employed these people. She said, if you employ me to do this and nothing changes, you're not going to hear the end of it. She really made sure that this absolutely happened. And I respect this so much because she was an actress who just said, I've got a platform and I'm going to use it to try and make the world a better place. And if I can change NASA then I can change anything. Exactly. Yeah, she used her voice to change the world and change how spaceflight looked. And like you said, she was an actress. She could have just been like, no, I'm not interested. I've been thinking a lot, obviously, in the last few days about how Star Trek kind of changed the world. And Charles touched on this. You know, the reason why it's probably got one of the longest enduring, most popular, you know, science fiction series is, is because, you know, it really tried to speak to everybody. Yeah, I think there's another factor as well that it came along at the right time. Uh, first aired 1966. We're in the middle of the Gemini program. Uh, Apollo's about to start. Public interest in spaceflight is huge. And here is a primetime TV show about spaceflight in the future. And rather than it just be the white guys, it's got everyone in it. And none of the people who aren't the white guys, are there as token gestures either. They've all got jobs, and they're good at them. And that is why Martin Luther King was so adamant that Nichelle couldn't give up that job. And it's just got this wonderful, enduring legacy as a result. Now, if you enjoyed that interview with Charles, you can go and watch it, as always, on our Patreon page, if you're so inclined, patreon.com forward slash space and things. And if you want to learn more about Celestius, then we'll put something in the show notes as well. But I hope you've enjoyed our little talk about the importance of Star Trek. But I also really hope that if you didn't know before, you now know how important Nichelle Nichols was in absolutely transforming NASA and US spaceflight uh, and spaceflight for the world because that had the knock-on effect to other places as well. She is someone that absolutely deserves all of our respect. This is your NASA. A space agency embarked on a mission to improve the quality of life on planet Earth right now. Since Emily and I last recorded, and for the third week in a row, there have been three launches. Three sets of three. I love that. I love that. Anyway, <laughs> one in Russia and two in China. One of the Chinese ones was a demo flight for a brand new rocket called the Jonka 
1A, which was developed by the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And it's Russia and China that will dominate the news this week. Firstly, the head of Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, has made a clarifying statement <laughs> about the Russian... I'm trying not to laugh. <laughs> you predicted it. I know. I was like, they are gonna... <laughs> yep. About the... Has made a clarifying statement about the Russian uh, withdrawal from the International Space Station. He said, we announced we intend to do this not in 2024, but after 2024. <laughs> in Russian, these are two big differences. So precisely what the timeline is remains vague, but they have released images of Ross the Russian Orbital Service Station, which they intend to start building an orbit in 2028. It seems clear that they're planning to dovetail the withdrawal from the ISS with the start of Ross. Meanwhile, the United States Congress has agreed to continue to fund the ISS until 2030, as long as partners also continue to fund it. It's not clear whether that's each partner or just enough partners. Uh, so the future of the ISS is very much up in the air at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting. Well, one thing I will say is the U.S. is very much banking on the idea that commercial enterprise is going to take up the slack when the ISS is decommissioned, whereas the Russians are, are building their own thing and, and making sure there's something up there. They're two very different approaches, and there will be a period where I, th I feel like America will be left behind, similar to the end of the shuttle period, where it took a long time for the commercial replacement to actually become ready. So I think America need to brace themselves for the fact that there will be a Russian space station and potentially there won't be anything up there by the NASA or any US commercial partners by the time the ISS is decommissioned. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's something that people have to start accepting now. And that's because they're deciding to go down this perhaps longer-term thought process of commercial flights should play for this within low-Earth orbit. And that, that's a bigger debate, uh, but it's obviously the decision that's been made at NASA and by the US Congress, but there will be a lag, and I think it just there needs to be that acceptance that that's going to be the case. Yeah, I, I also think it's... Um, I've heard that the, the Ross space station is supposed to be in a, a sun-synchronous orbit, which is north-to-south. I don't think there's ever been a, a space mission with people that's been in that kind of orbit ever. So I'm sort of wondering, okay, are they just are they gonna just spy on us? Like what's gonna why? <laughs> so I don't know. We'll see. We'll see, I guess. I don't know. Now you may remember that last week we spoke about the large Chinese rocket which was due to enter the atmosphere uncontrollably at some point. Well, it did just that on the 30th of July, and debris has been found across Malaysia and Indonesia. But fortunately, there have been no reports of injuries or damage caused by the chunks of rocket which reached the ground. It's estimated that 20 to 40% of the rocket may have survived the re-entry. That's quite a lot. And while we're talking about space junk coming back to Earth, a chunk of material has been found in Australia after a big bang was heard on July the 9th in the southwest of the country. And it looks like it might have been part of the SpaceX Crew-1 Dragon. Just before the capsule re-entered the atmosphere on May the 2nd, 2021, it jettisoned an unpressurized trunk, which has some wings on it. Uh, you may remember seeing these in, in diagrams of Dragon. And, and those who analyze trajectories believe that this trunk may now be back on Earth, or some of it anyway. SpaceX haven't confirmed that this is what it is. 
But if it is from space, it's the largest bit of debris to land on Australia from space since 1979, when a space station called Skylab, which uh, you may have heard of, re-entered the atmosphere slightly earlier than planned. Uh, and so it goes that what my dad used to always tell me when we were on roller coasters is in fact true. What goes up must come down. Thanks for the lesson, Dad. Yeah, Skylab, that's it. That's the. I'm just going to say that word just to get it out of my system today. Meanwhile, on Mars, the Perseverance rover has taken its 11th rock sample, and NASA has also made further announcements about how it intends to bring these samples back home, having revamped the joint mission with the European Space Agency. Um, Instead of setting up a fetch rover, which was being designed by the Europeans, Perseverance will now complete the task of collecting the samples and taking them to the Mars sample return lander when it touches down in 2031. However, as a backup option, in case Percy is not up for the task, uh, NASA is sending two helicopters, much like Ingenuity, which are being designed to pick up the uh, caches. I suppose this is due to the success of Ingenuity and the fact that it has really far outperformed what was expected of it. This change of plan also means that the mission will require one less launch, so it makes a lot of sense financially as well. It's a shame for the Europeans with their rover, but... It's a very cool development. Yeah. Last week, we announced that Virgin Galactic has started working on a new spaceship factory. Well, this week, they've announced they're building a new astronaut training facility in New Mexico. That's right. They've purchased land for a state-of-the-art astronaut campus, as they call it. Now, that's a place I want to go. I want to go. It will include... Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) It will include training facilities, accommodation, an observatory, a wellness center, recreation activities, and unique dining options. Basically, it's like the Disney resorts in Disney World. A place to live when the parks are closed, or in this context, a place to live while you're waiting for your flight. A great idea. Yes, I want to be there. That's all I got to say. I I want to go to this resort or... It sounds like a resort to me. Well, that's something they're calling it a national training place, but it's just a resort, isn't it? That's that's basically it. It isn't sounds it? fancy. Ad- value added, yeah, value added to the uh, commercial tourism of space. Yeah, it sounds really fancy. A couple of weeks back, we talked about Buzz Aldrin selling some things as Sotheby's. His Apollo Eleven in-flight jacket sold for two point eight million, which is a world record for a space-flown artifact. Uh, in total, Buzz's items sold for almost $8.2 million. However, there was one item that didn't sell, and that was the pen we spoke about when we mentioned the auction. The famous felt-tip pen which Buzz used to close the circuit breaker, which saved the crew because they wouldn't have been able to take off from the moon without it. The lot also included the nib from the circuit breaker, which broke off, thus triggering Buzz to find a way to fix it. Bidding did reach $650 thousand dollars but that did not reach a preset reserve uh i really thought that was going to go for big money i'm surprised it didn't go yeah i mean 650 is still big money but i thought this was an item that would go for seven figures so uh looks like buzz did as well and finally as excitement for the artemis one launch ramps up a mannequin named Munikin Campos has been installed within the Orion capsule. Named after Arturo Campos, an electrical engineer who was a key player in bringing back Apollo 13, the dummy is human-sized and filled with sensors and equipment which will give a better understanding of what it's like to fly on board Orion. He's in the commander's chair, so he's a 
pretty big deal. You may remember us reporting on the competition for choosing the name last year. It was quite the event online. Also, in a giant leap for Lambkind, the European Space Agency has arranged for a plush doll of Sean the Sheep to be included in the Artemis One official flight kit. 2022 is the 15th anniversary of Sean's first TV show, so somehow he ended up on the mission. A crazy story, but if it helps get some kids excited about spaceflight and Artemis, then I'm all for it. Do you know, that was really hard to do without laughing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, we don't have that show here, I think, but he's really cute. I saw, I retweeted him. He, he's adorable. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's the same people that did Wallace and Gromit. I think you had that ah, over there, didn't you? Okay, it's, it's yes. the same company. We do it's have the that. the same style of animated cartoon. Well, yeah, it's all uh, stop motion stuff, isn't it? So yeah. All righty, that's that's cool. All right, <laughs> but what? Why? But anyway, uh, better than Teletubbies? I don't know. Better than that. Apollo, 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 I flew on Apollo twelve, and I flew on uh, Skylab two. Sky you. You know a lot. <laughs> I know a lot about you, LSD. That's all, folks. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, we've got about six different interviews lined up for the next few weeks covering a variety of topics. So be the first to find out by visiting our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash space and things. A massive thanks to all who are already there and to anyone who reached out to congratulate us on reaching 100 episodes. Although don't tell anyone, Emily, we actually achieved this one week earlier because we did an unnumbered extra episode when, when Michael Collins passed away. So technically, this is our 102nd episode, but I don't think anyone has noticed. So I think we got away with, away with it. <laughs> anyway, thanks to all who continue to share the podcast. The only reason people have found out about this is from word of mouth. So it's all down to you, our listeners, that our numbers seem to be growing month on month. So thank you. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.